The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Investment Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative. Includes assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien. And you are listening to Everyday Wealth. So if you follow financial headlines at all, you might have heard the saying, the markets are not the economy. And if you listen to our show, we say it all the time. (laughs) So you must have heard that before. Today, we're going to talk about both, focusing in on how people might approach their saving and investing when the economy might be contracting. Later, we'll be discussing health savings accounts, HSAs, and we're going to go to the phone lines as we uh, talk with a caller about what to do with money he inherited from his mom's IRA. Gene, let's start with financial news. As you alluded to, Soledad, the report on U.S. GDP came in and we saw that the U.S. economy contracted in the first three months of the year. GDP declined by 0.4% percent, four-tenths of one percent in the first quarter when adjusted for inflation or 1.4 percent on an annualized basis. And just a reminder here, two down quarters in a row, that puts the country officially in a recession. And so you got to wonder, why did the markets, which have been swinging back and forth by hundreds of points pretty much day by day, why did the markets actually rise on this news? It's because a look beneath the numbers show that the decline had more to do with a growing trade deficit and slower growth in inventories rather than a weakening of consumer spending. And if you actually factored those two line items out, the economy grew by a little more than a half of 1%. Still, we're starting to see consumers get fatigued by all of this inflation. It's showing up in their spending. Demand is slowing for things like mattresses and other big ticket items. And I was sad to read that just in time for Mother's Day, 1-800-Flowers believes that consumers are going to spend less on bouquets this year. That's so, a lie. It's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day to my mother. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And I'm sorry if your flowers aren't fabulous. Yeah, if you're like me and you're kind of relying on the once a year flower thing. <laughs> Well, might not be the year for us. So, Gene, if the stock market and the economy are not interchangeable, and I know we've said that a bunch of times and we're saying it again, why do we often act as if they are interchangeable, right? When people freak out when the stock market's going down or if something's happening with the economy. I think it's a little bit like gas prices representing the whole of inflation. The stock market is loud. It has its own television channel. In fact, it has several television channels. And so we pay a lot of attention to it because it is out there making noise. But what we have to remember is that the stock market doesn't represent 
everyone participating in the economy. We did a show on small business. By the way, if you missed it, you can always get it in podcast form at planefe.com on the Everyday Wealth page. But this show pointed out the fact that 99% of all businesses in this country are small business, and yet the stock market is mostly large corporations. All of these concepts, though, when we're talking about inflation and when we're talking about trade deficits, these are complicated issues. And so if you've got somebody to talk to in your life about that, if you have a financial advisor and a financial plan, fantastic. You're doing great. If you don't, the folks at Edelman Financial Engines are always there to help. You can reach out at planefe.com. When we look at the stock market, we're really just looking at one indicator. We're looking at one piece of the puzzle, and we're actually looking at a future indicator at that. The stock market is a sign of where people think the economy is going to go. It's investors betting on growth in the future rather than what's happening on Main Street at this particular point in time. Why did the economy shrink if consumers are still spending? And maybe we're about to get to a point where they're not going to spend as much because of inflation. I mean, it, does supply chain play a role in that? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about more imports than exports, it means we're bringing more into this country than we're sending out of this country. And the stuff that we send out of this country is stuff we get paid for. The stuff we bring into this country is stuff we pay for typically. So if you're looking at the left side of the equation versus the right side, we were spending more than we were bringing in as a country. You also have this supply chain problem that still exists that stores and other manufacturers are trying really hard to get ahead of. And so they spent more. But I'm wondering how investors are thinking about this as well. And we've got Brian Leslie with us. He is a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines. Hey, Gene Soledad. Thanks for having me. So let's say, Brian, someone walks into your office. Are they freaking out because of market volatility? Are these conversations you have a lot? What are you hearing right now? And what are you seeing as people come to meet with you? I think it's natural to just ask questions when you see all the volatility that's going on. Nobody invests with the idea of seeing their accounts go down. It's just not something we like to see. But I think for the most part, we understand it's part of the game, right? This is like the price you have to pay to get the higher returns that are associated with the stock market. And if you're not willing to pay that price, then you just have to sacrifice a little bit on return expectations. I'd say the people that are struggling the most with this are the people that don't have a plan. All of the investment plans that we build for our clients, we recognize that there's going to be downturns. I mean, on average, every year, we have a decline of about 10% or more in the stock market. We went almost two years without one. I mean, quite frankly, we were a little spoiled you know, for the past couple of years. But even building on that, 20% declines, which I guess would be the definition of a quote-unquote bear market, those on average happen every three to four years. 
The point being, for most of our investors, we recognize that volatility is part of it, and it was factored into their plan from the get-go. I think, Brian, the idea that you have to weather the ups and downs has to be part of that conversation. And when you're talking to somebody about your quote-unquote plan, you let them know that this is coming, that every year you're likely to see some sort of a 10% dip, and you should not panic. For those folks that are concerned, there isn't anything wrong with reaching out to your advisor for a little reassurance during times like these. I mean, that's what you're paying your advisor for. If you knew you needed money in the next two to five years, that money probably shouldn't have been in the stock market in the first place. You should probably have had it in things like cash or, or bonds or more conservative investments where you aren't having to deal with stock market volatility. And I think that's the biggest thing that I would try to get across is get a plan and then stick to it. That's why I like that automatic paying, though. I don't do that. And I'm actually going to switch to that because I like the idea of money being invested automatically, right? It kind of takes it out of your hands. My mother would say, it's in the Lord's hands, (laughs) but but it is out of your hands, right? You don't have to make emotional decisions about it. Have you found that's helpful for people who get a little anxious about the volatility of the market, Brian? Without a doubt. You got to take human emotion out of play, just setting it to where it's automated. It's happening at the same time every month for the same amount. That way you don't have to decide now is a good time to invest or not. You look back, those people that were making contributions in March of 2020, early April 2020 during the COVID decline, do you think it felt good to put that money in at that time? No, no, but they're happy they did at this point. Right. And there are a lot of people, I think, who are thinking of doing the very same thing now as the markets have come down a bit. Look, it's complicated, which is why it's so important to just talk to somebody. And if you're not somebody who has a financial advisor on speed dial already, then talking to you guys at EFE is a great way to go. You guys are always there and willing to help. Yeah. If you don't have a plan or a financial advisor, give us a call, 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. Let's talk about I-bonds. In the last six months, this is according to the uh, Wall Street Journal, in the last six months, 11 billion, billion, with a B, billion dollars worth of I-bonds were bought by American investors. And it was only $1.2 billion for the same time period the year before. In the last month, there's been a pretty significant volume of internet searches on I-bonds. So what is going on with I-bonds? Why does everyone care about I-bonds? Why is there so much interest in I-bonds? And also, what the heck is an I-bond? All right. All right. Let's just set the table here to make sure that listeners know what we're talking about. I-bonds are savings bonds tied to inflation. So when you got a savings bond, it had one interest rate that was attached to it. I-bonds actually have two interest rates. They have a combo of a fixed interest rate and a variable interest rate tied to inflation. And so right now, with inflation chugging along the way it is, these I-bonds are paying a really nice return. And that return that they're paying is locked in for a good chunk of time. The fixed rate is set by the Treasury on the day that you purchase this bond. The variable rate is the inflation-adjusted one. It's set by the Bureau of Labor Statistics every six months, and it reflects changes in the consumer price 
price index. The interest on these bonds is compounded semi-annually. It's added to the bond's principal. It's paid out when you cash that bond out or when it reaches maturity. And maturity comes at 20 years plus a 10-year extended period for a total of 30 years. So the past six-ish months or so, I-bonds were set at an interest rate of 7.12%. Going forward, they are now set at 9.6%. It's no surprise that they're really attractive to investors because it's a sure thing. And if you compare it to the rate that you're getting in a savings account or a money market account – which is next to nothing, these things look really good. That brings us then, Brian, I think, to you. Give me an explanation of the interest that you're seeing and why do you think for your clients there's so much interest in I-bonds? I think it comes back to the cash reserve. I mean, for the last couple of years, we've been sitting on checking, savings, money markets, CDs, making whopping 0. nothing percent. And, of course, with inflation now starting to rip, You've got your cost of living going up at seven, eight, nine percent, and your cash reserves are making zero point nothing. So I think that's the ultimate trigger. So as you think about use cases, there's times for certain clients, we may recommend having up to two years worth of expenses in cash reserves. So if you're using I-bonds as a portion of your cash reserves, I think it's perfectly legitimate. You're essentially guaranteeing yourself that you're going to get a rate of return that's equivalent to inflation. Now, there are some downsides. They're not perfect. You need to hold these bonds for at least a year before you can cash them out. And if you cash them out before five years, you lose the last three months of interest that you gain. But Personally, to me, that seems like a drop in the bucket, again, compared to those bank savings account rates. The other problem with I-bonds is that you can't buy very much of them. Individuals are limited to buying $10,000 in I-bonds each year. You got to buy them directly from the Treasury through treasurydirect.com. If you're getting a tax refund, you can get an extra $5,000 by using your tax refund to directly buy paper I-bonds. But if you're trying to build a portfolio where you're putting in significantly more than that, people sometimes stop and wonder, is this worth it? Brian, there's an alternative, right? I mean, treasury inflation protected securities, TIPS, are often brought up in the same conversation. Which do you like for your clients? And should we be thinking about these differently? I do think you have to think about them differently. So I don't know if I would use TIPS as an alternative to a cash reserve, but I think I-bonds play a great alternative to cash reserves. Because when you essentially sell your bond, you're getting the principal back. The problem with TIPS is if you're going to sell them on the secondary market, you don't ultimately know what a buyer is going to give you for them. So there's some unknown there. Now, like I said, tips may play a role as part of somebody's diversified portfolio. I just don't necessarily think they're maybe the best cash alternative like I-bonds can play. So then, Brian, is your $10,000 best used, you know, parked as an I-bond or is it best put into the market for the long term? Well, if this is the only $10,000 you have in your cash reserves, it, it should probably be neither because I-bonds, you can't sell them for at least 12 months. And if you put it in the stock market, sure, you could sell your stocks any day the market's open. But the problem is you don't know what price you're going to be able to sell them at. 
there's times where we'll recommend having up to two years worth of expenses as a cash reserve item. If this 10000 is that second year of living expenses, you bet, put it in I-bonds, as long as you've got enough in cash reserves to last you for the first year if you have an income disruption. So if you have a client who is thinking they want to be protected against inflation, one other alternative is to say you are covered because we've got you diversified. I mean, where would you recommend if they're thinking specifically about inflation, they put this money? I I think that is a good thing to add to this discussion of I-bonds and tips. Like, Remember, there is no golden bullet here. I-bonds, you're essentially guaranteed to get the rate of inflation. But remember, you do have to pay taxes on that interest. So technically, when you factor in taxes, you're actually netting out a return that's slightly less than what the inflation rate is. Remember that one of the best ultimate long-term diversifiers against inflation is stocks. They have done a pretty good job of providing a rate of return in excess of the rate of inflation. Now, the problem is you just got to be willing and able to deal with the volatility. And that comes back to making sure you've got a diversified portfolio and recognizing that if your plan is calling for distributions or you need some of that money here in the next few years to live off of, you got to plan for it. You just can't put it all in the stock market and hope that you're going to sell when things are at the top because that's not a very good plan. So, Brian, with these I-bonds, if you decide to go forward, you're buying them from Treasury Direct. That means yet another account that you've got to open and you've got to follow and you've got to keep tabs on. Are there any specific things that people have to keep in mind if they're going down this road? I think one of the obvious ones is an estate planning item. And that is when you're buying these things electronically, you're not getting a statement. Matter of fact, I don't believe they're sending any 1099s via paper either. So your beneficiaries need to know where to find them at if you actually own them. Because otherwise, let's say mom or dad buy these things and then they pass away. Now all of a sudden the kids come in. If they don't have any record of it, are they going to know it's out there? Mm-hmm. You won't. Let me just answer that from personal experience. <laughs> Let me dip into my personal experience because I'm not sure all of you out there have had this little circle of hell to deal with parents who were really organized in their real life, but when it came to uh, their accounts, et cetera, et cetera, it is a really difficult thing to foist on people when you pass away all these accounts that you did not track and all these things that you had but you have no record of that you've talked about but no one can find any details on or any background on. That is my PSA and I am now done. (laughs) If you want to have a discussion around I-bonds or tips and how they work in your portfolio, just give us a call, 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. And I keep Soledad coming back to something that that Brian said earlier, that money that you think that you need in the next two, three, four, even five years sometimes, it doesn't belong in the stock market now, and it never did. People get caught up, and they just are chasing returns, and at some point, the party stops. It will start up again, but if it stops when you need to pay that college tuition, if it stops when you have a tax bill to pay or or there's something else that you need the money for, that is when 
the loss in the market hurts. And that's why when we're talking about automating contributions into your investment, Soledad, which is something that I've done for years, I contribute every single month, but I also contribute every single month to a high interest rate savings account or a savings account with an interest rate that's as high as you're ever going to get right now. If you're looking for more information on I-bonds or inflation or any of the topics that we've been digging into today, join us at hermoney.com. We're having a regular conversation about all of these money topics and more. We need to take a very short break here, but when we get back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about health savings accounts. And later in the show, we will answer a listener's question about inherited IRAs. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like us to cover on a future show, just visit us at planefe.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. You can submit your questions there. I'm Jean Chatsky with Soledad O'Brien. Stay with us. Those who've built their own financial success know that moving forward requires not just the right tools, but an in-depth knowledge of how to use them. That's why Edelman Financial Engines gives you a dedicated wealth planner supported by a team of experts. By combining human insight and advanced technology, we provide a truly tailored experience to your needs and goals. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to get your complimentary financial plan. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien. We are going to switch it up here a little bit and dive into health savings accounts, HSAs, and how you might think about using them as part of your wealth strategy. We are joined by Brian Leslie. Brian is an Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner. He's from Omaha, Nebraska. And So many of the different topics we talk about on this show are dependent on your personal financial situation, your personal economy. HSAs are no different. They are totally reliant on what kind of health plan you have and how you want to use it and how you want to save for retirement. It's complicated. And so if you're interested in talking With a wealth planner about your situation, you can just pick up the phone and call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. So, Brian, let's set a little bit of context. HSAs have been coming on really strong over the past couple of years. But for those people who are not familiar or who think that an HSA is the same thing as an FSA, can you set us straight? Yeah, I think that's some of the issues that HSAs have been running into is overcoming some of the stigma that was applied to FSAs, which, you know, I think the most popular trait there is the use it or lose it function. You know, you would add to these on pre-tax dollars, then all of a sudden you get to the end of the year, you haven't used it, and you'd be in a scramble to come up with some medical expenses that you needed to use it for. But the problem is you, you couldn't roll it over year to year. Along comes the health savings account, where you don't have to use it or lose it, and you can let it continue to roll over year over year. On top of that, you can also invest the money, and I think that's the kicker. That really makes these things valuable. I mean, the last time I was this excited about something was probably when I was introduced to ice cream cake. But (laughs) the the fact that you put money in tax deductible, it gets to grow tax-free. And then, of course, when you take it out, assuming it's used for qualified 
health expenses, it comes out tax-free. That triple tax advantage is a huge function of the health savings accounts. But yet so many people don't invest in health savings account. What, 90 plus percent of the people don't invest the funds? I found that statistic pretty shocking, actually. I think people don't know that you can. HSAs are relatively new. They're a little bit complicated. People have no idea that you can invest the money, and you can only do it in some HSAs. Sometimes you have to hit a threshold of of money in the account before you're allowed to invest it. But if you have the option, Brian's right. I mean, I'm going to nerd out here right along with him. These are really amazing because if you have enough money that you can actually pay for your unreimbursed healthcare needs just out of your checking account, and you can let the money in your HSA grow, it becomes this supplemental retirement account. And then, and this is the unbelievable hack, you know, all those doctors that you saw over all of those years that you were paying for medical expenses outside of the HSA, you just save those receipts. And then when you pull the money out of your HSA, you can use it to go to the Bahamas. And as long as you write the expenses off against those years and years and years of receipts, you don't have to pay taxes. That's a great point. And that is make sure, number one, you keep good records, keep those receipts for the expenses. But number two, for folks that have strong income, the ability to just cash flow healthcare expenses as they come up and let the money sit in your HSA and continue to compound and continue to grow is a huge function of these. Remember, once you hit age 65, you can tap these things for non-healthcare expenses. Now, you still have to pay ordinary income tax, but you avoid the penalty for taking the money out for non-healthcare expenses. And I think that's a huge function. According to Ebri, in 2020, the average account containing investments other than cash grew by $3,420, whereas the average non-invested account grew by 170 bucks. I think what you're seeing there is the difference between people who understand what an HSA can do when used powerfully and people who are just flowing their money through their HSAs. If you're using it as an account to pay for your kids to go to the doctor when they have an ear infection or for your prescriptions, it's saving you money. Just having an HSA saves you about 25% on any eligible medical expense because of the tax treatment. But if If you are letting the money grow, that's where you see that big difference. Those people are not pulling money out of their HSAs. They're just putting it in. If you need the money, you need the money. Take it out. On the other hand, for those folks that have strong cash flow, let it grow, let it compound and get it invested because to your point, having it sit in a depository option where you're making less than 1% is really not doing the compounding part that much. One other thing I would add is remember that if you have an HSA with your current employer, you can transfer the money in that HSA to another HSA that does offer investment options if yours doesn't. So if you don't have the ability to invest your current HSA, just look for a different provider that does. Is there a list of what you're allowed to spend it on? You know, often there's a sort of like master list. And, you know, if you accidentally (laughs) spend it on something that's not approved, well, you're just going to eat that and you're not going to be able to write that one off. There's not just a list. There's a store. 
There's an hsastore.com on the internet. Really? And all of the things there is and all of the things that they carry are HSA approved. If I'm thinking about where to put that next dollar, am I going to max out my 401k? Am I going to max out my HSA? I'm going to put money in my kids' 529. Brian, how do you go through these calculations? I think this needs to be up there with your 401k contributions. You know, certainly prioritize getting to the 100% match of your employer. But after that, I think you might want to consider throwing the dollars at the HSA. So you've got the rough order, right? But are there any big differences when it comes to contributing to a 401k versus an HSA? Yeah. With the 401k, of course, the money goes in pre-tax. You don't have to pay federal estate income tax on that. But with the HSA... Not only do you avoid federal and state income tax, but you also avoid FICA taxes. A lot of people don't realize that. When you contribute to an HSA via your employer withholdings, and that's the key thing, is if it's done by your employer via payroll withholdings, the money you contribute does not get included in your FICA tax calculation. Now, if you have the money paid to you and then you later write a check and contribute to an HSA, you do have to recognize that money had the FICA taxes paid on it already. So there is a difference between how the money goes into your HSA and and how it's taxed. It's complicated and hard. And, you know, most of us are not financial planners. We're trying to, like, do our jobs and figure out how to get to retirement and have some money saved and do the things that we want to do. There's a famous study, Soledad, that people spend more time planning a vacation than they do figuring out which health plan to go on. And and it's that makes it's sense sad to me. because it's it well it makes sense to me too. I mean, <laughs> which would you rather do? You'd rather go on vacation, but when we don't pay attention, we end up really um regretting it. It's not only just paying attention. It's you know, to navigate through and figure out how to do it, you actually need to sit down with someone and have them kind of walk you through and help you at every decision point. On that note, if you need help planning a vacation or Talking about HSAs, give us a call, (laughs) 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. What's your favorite place to vacation, Brian? I'm a skier, so mountains, anywhere. Get me outdoors. Oh, I love that. My wife always complains because I'm an active vacationer. Like, we don't go and sit on the beach anywhere. It's usually hiking or skiing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think our families can vacation together. <laughs> I'm an apres skier since I have no ACLs in my knee. So I really am the person who's like, okay, bye, guys. Have fun. I'll meet you down at the bottom of the, the mountain when My it's all wife over. will probably be there if you have a b- <laughs> bottle of, of wine. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Up next, we're going to take a look at one guy's uh, unique situation. We'd love to have people uh, sending us questions or feel free to call us. Just visit planefe.com and visit the Everyday Wealth page. So let's welcome Mark from Stanford, Connecticut. Hi, Mark. Welcome. It's nice to have you. Well, thanks for uh, letting me call. Of course, of course. So we've got our uh, team of experts here, and I know you have a question about an inheritance from your mom's IRA. Can you explain what your question is? Sure. Uh, When my mom died, she had an IRA. I got $40,000 from that IRA, and it's called an inheritance IRA. I guess it's because she was already at the age where she had to start paying out uh, from that IRA. And the way I understand it, um, I have 10 years to distribute the funds. um, And I'm just trying to figure out what the best way to do that is. Uh, You know, should I just go ahead and distribute them now, put them into a a normal investment account? Or should I wait 10 years and do it all at the end? Or what's the best way to to handle that kind of uh, distribution? Uh, Mark, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? 
Sure, go right ahead. What would your mom want you to do with this money? Mm. That's deep. Yeah, uh, That's deep. That is deep. Right? <laughs> I, I think um, probably what she would be most interested in is just making sure that our kids, you know, uh, have everything they need. So that's probably what she would say, uh, you know, to, uh, to think about the future uh, with, with our kids. Okay, that's helpful. What's one thing that you're going to remember the most about your mother? Um, probably her interaction with our children. Uh, you know, we were really lucky to have her uh, nearby. Um, and so, uh, you know, throughout our kids growing up, they would spend weekends with her, uh, which they didn't get to do with their other grandparents. And it was, you know, just one of the really special things that a lot of kids today don't, don't, don't get to do is have that relationship with their, you know, with their grandparent. So, Mark, we, we like to say that all questions are really personal, right, when it comes to your personal economy and your personal situation. And, right. and this is no different. Do you need this money right now? No, we don't need it right now. If you were to pull the money out in a lump sum, you, you have 10 years to pull it out. If you pulled it out all at once or in even chunks over 10 years, would either of those change your tax situation? Would it bump you into a higher tax bracket? No, we're, uh, we're sort of uh, in the mid-bottom of uh, the uh, tax bracket we're in, so it wouldn't really change the tax bracket. It sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on like what tax bracket you're actually in and, and where you stand. But I would also throw some of these auxiliary tax ramifications at you. One thing you mentioned that you had kids. So keep in mind like the child tax credit. There's pretty rigid lines on those thresholds. And if you go over them, you could lose out on those child tax credits. Um, how old are you? Uh, I'm 57. 57. Okay. So, the, you know, some other things that come to mind would be things like Medicare premiums. You know, those are dependent upon what your income is. So, you know, you mm-hmm. may be in the same tax bracket, but of course, if your income is higher, you may be expected to pay more for Medicare Part B and Part D. Now, obviously, that's not affecting you given your age, but for others that might be listening. But it might matter in 10 years if I was thinking about taking you it be- out then. You bet. No doubt. So you've got this inherited IRA with about $40,000 in it. What should we do with it? Well, of course, you want to be smart about the tax drag as you're withdrawing that. We just discussed that option. If you don't need it, um, it sounds like you want to keep it invested. One thing that we always like to consider is the option to take some of this money out and then use it to fund your own IRA or Roth contributions. Now, you probably wouldn't want to put it into a traditional IRA because you won't take a deduction you sound like you're pretty closer, even above the Roth IRA contribution limit. Yeah. The other thing, though, and this is why I asked you about the traditional IRAs, is you might consider doing a backdoor Roth IRA mm. contribution. Well, one thing I had thought about was um, whether I could, you know, put more of my income directly into my 401k and then just use this as a supplement income. But I wasn't sure whether that would be a good idea or not either. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it kind of cancels itself out. In other words, you're taking IRA income from the inherited IRA, but then you're subtracting it from your wage income that you otherwise would have. I think that's a perfectly okay. fine option as well. How um, old are your kids, Mark? One of them has just graduated college and the other one is a junior in college. Oh, so their college is taken care of. I was going to ask Yeah, the college question. is taken care of. Um, right. We had help from grandparents as well as, as, as what we've done. 
I kind of love your mom, by the way. I mean, yeah. look at her, focused <laughs> on her grandkids, focused on helping them sure. get through and leaving you with a nice chunk of money. And, you know, well, my but- dad died early when I was actually when I was in college. And mm. so she was really there to, you know, to do all that stuff. Amazing. Uh, uh, as, as it really on. is. That's wonderful. It really is. And I was sort of struck by what you were saying about your mom and how she would want you to do something with this money for your kids. I mean, you've got kids who are going to launch in life, yeah. right? You've got kids who are going to set up their own apartments, we hope, fingers crossed, someday soon, right? And and go out on their own. And, and that's expensive too. And yes. being able to do that as well as contribute to their own retirement. I, I mean, I'm sort of wondering, Brian, maybe one thing that Mark might consider is taking some of that money and converting it into a Roth that could be a, you know, a Roth for the kids. Is that, Hmm. is that a possible thing to do? Yeah. You know, keep in mind to be able to make contributions, you do need to have earned income. So. But he could wait a couple of years, right? There's nothing saying you have to start pulling the money out now. My daughter actually has, has a job. She's still living at home right now because of COVID and all that, but uh, she already has a job. So maybe that is a good idea. It it just seems like that would be really respectful of the legacy that your mom left. And and I was thinking about my, my own husband. His mother left him an IRA. Uh, it's been a while now, so he had years to pull the money out. But he used that money to help pay for college. And he sat his kids down and he told them, you know, this is from not just your mom and your dad, but your education is being paid for by generations of your family. And that was really meaningful to them. I'm getting all choked up. That's amazing. Mark, do any of those suggestions um, resonate with you? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of these were great suggestions. And, and I just wasn't really sure about the way the tax drag would work. So it was a really good chance to get to talk about uh, about some of those options. You know, a lot of people say that an inheritance is it's so emotional as far as money is concerned that you shouldn't do anything with it for six months and you shouldn't do anything with it until you talk to a financial advisor. Um, and, and just listening to the, the scenarios that Brian threw out for you in, in under five minutes, I think that that's really true. Um, it's complicated. And, and so um, I'm glad that you had a chance to, to talk to Brian. Yes, thanks a lot. If your financial house is squared away and, you know, maybe you don't need this, I, I think making sure you carry on your mom's legacy. Um, I, I think about my own situation and um, my grandparents last year uh, were dealing with some cognitive decline issues and they weren't able to live at home. And there wasn't anything I wanted from my grandparents except for one thing, and it was an orange vest from my grandfather. And the reason I wanted that orange vest is because when I was younger, we all went out to Colorado skiing as a family, and that was the one thing I remember was my grandfather coming down the mountain. Of course, I was in junior high at the time. I was getting down much faster than he was, but I would get down to the bottom of the mountain, and I'd look up waiting for him, and I always knew he was coming because of this bright orange vest <laughs> that he was wearing. <laughs> so that is something that will stick with me uh, for, for all of my life. And you know, I, the, the, the reason I asked you about things that you'll remember the most about your mother is you, you probably will never say this $40,000 IRA that she left you, it's going to be something else. Right. Um, and, and creating that for, for yourself and, and for your uh, children, I think, is something powerful. 
That was so beautifully said. Thank you, Brian. That was amazing. Mark, thank you for your time. Thank you for your question. So great to talk to you. We really appreciate it. And that's our show for today. If you have a question that you want us to answer, just visit us at planefe.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. And if you're interested in a past show, you can download Everyday Wealth wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd like to thank Brian Leslie from Edelman Financial Engines for being here as always. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And a big thanks to Mark from Connecticut for calling in as well. Have a great week, everybody. Wondering how Social Security fits into your overall wealth plan? Get a financial action plan that shows you how. Call 833-PLAN-EFE right now and get a free Social Security and Retirement Review. You'll partner with one of our experienced financial planners to align your wealth strategy, personal goals, and cash flow to your future retirement income. The plan alone is an $800 value. Yours free. Just call 833-PLAN-EFE by Tuesday at 10 p.m. to take advantage of this limited-time offer. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.